Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is by G. Wayne Miller for the Providence Journal. So basically, COVID-19 is a, a virus that affects uh, the lungs primarily. Pathology is still really not clear, but we think that uh, to a great extent, the problem is it causes clotting. And basically, this is a disease of medical patients. So, so when you think about the difference, uh, one of the main differences in medicine in general is there are medical patients and medical doctors like general internists and then cardiologists and pulmonary critical care docs, gastroenterologists, and then there are surgeons and uh, different kinds of surgeons and then one of the types of surgeons are trauma surgeons. So the COVID-19 illness is a disease that's usually cared for by medical doctors, in particular, either general internists on the wards or critical care physicians in the intensive care unit. And so we have been in charge of caring for these critically ill patients and developing the plans for the state from the very beginning. And so uh, I have been working with uh, a number of other people, both in lifespan and across the state, to develop the what ifs. How do we increase the number of ICU beds? How many ventilators will we need? I wrote the protocol for managing patients on the ventilator that are then given to the surgeons. When we had to open a second unit, we opened a unit that was then because we're all stretched so far for staff, we opened the unit that we asked the surgeons if they would run, and they began to run that unit with help of our protocols. And uh, when we opened the third unit, it was actually the neuro-intensivists, who are essentially neurologists, who are gonna care for these folks. And when we open a fourth unit, it will be the cardiologists. So all four units are done under the supervision of the pulmonary critical care division. That's the, been the case in Spain, in Italy, in Washington State, in New York. And my faculty, okay. we have 23 faculty. And so if I try to run, uh, we have an 18-bed medical, COVID medical intensive care unit, but we also have an 18-bed uh, non-COVID medical intensive care unit for the people who are non-COVID but critically ill. And so if we started to try to run every unit, we just simply would run out of people. Okay. So classically, a, a lot of people are helping, and then we provide the supervision. Okay, so it's a, it's a personnel and, and, and capacity issue, essentially. Correct. So now, I, I'm intrigued. You, you wrote the plan for the state in terms of some aspects of this. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah so we, I've been part of two uh, national gui international guideline panels. First was the Surviving Sepsis Campaign COVID-19 Guidelines. I'm part of a panel that produces sepsis guidelines internationally every four years. And sometime in January, we realized we needed to provide a second independent set of guidelines just for COVID-19. And then in about two months ago, a little less, 
after our guidelines came out, uh, Dr. Fauci invited a select panel of critical care docs and infectious disease specialists to produce guidelines for HHS and the NIH. And we worked three times a week, two or three times a week for about six weeks and produced a set of guidelines, uh, NIH guidelines that we released it's probably 10 days ago. I used those guidelines to produce a treatment algorithm and basically a protocol for managing these folks on mechanical ventilators and just treatment in general. And you, this, this has obviously been shared with uh, Nicole Alexander Scott's people, and, and and so that goes statewide, correct? Right. So we have a okay. We have a call every Wednesday. Yeah. And I've sh I shared all of those protocols. It's at least three weeks to a month ago. Yeah. Talk about just where we are now from from your vantage point, both in terms of Rhode Island Hospital lifespan, but also the state. Yeah, I just gave a talk. The dean of the medical school is um, <clears throat> creating a, a, a uh, weekly meeting called Decoding COVID. And um, mm. yesterday, um, Jay Shore, the uh, chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine, and myself did a 30-minute talk on uh, surge planning and predictive modeling. And uh, that's online, and we probably can get you a copy of that. Um, but basically... We talked about, uh, it's pretty clear from the models that are being prepared for the Department of Health that we have passed the surge. And more importantly, what's clear is, you know, predictive modeling is, uh, it's better than uh, rolling dice, but um, <laughs> not by much. And, and part of the problem is, is when you develop a predictive model, to, and we all want the predictive models, especially departments of health yeah. because you want to know when is the surge going to be, how many ventilators will I need, how many hospital beds, etc., etc. And what's characterized this illness more than any other is the, the, um, the large predictions and the large number of beds predicted and ICU beds and ventilators, but no one understood the profound impact that social distancing was going to have on the, on the illness. And so, and on the pandemic. And so what you're seeing all across the globe is that countries and regions and states and hospital networks that quickly move to stop visitation, to have everybody wear masks, to social distance in the hospitals, really what we say, you know, it's a cliche at this point, but flatten the curve. And so all of the predictions were overestimated, including our own. So as recently as Governor Raimondo's April 16th uh, press conference, she predicted accurately at the time that we would need almost 1,000 ICU beds and uh, about uh, 900 ventilators. And as social distancing has progressed, as recently as the last few days, we're now seeing that we're probably not going to need more than 100 to 150 ventilators and probably 250 ICU beds at the most, all of which are within easily um, reach of the resources we already have in the state. So it's, it's not bad that we prepare. It's good that we prepare. And who knows what's around the corner, of right. course. But um, all the estimates 
uh, really didn't take into account the power of social distancing, and that's what we're seeing now. About, I think it was two or three weeks ago, I, and I don't know how they determined these rankings, but they ranked the uh, preparedness state by state and the promptness with which social distancing happened, and we actually were ranked number one. Obviously, human behavior is the great variable here. You, we, we don't live in an autocratic society or a dictatorship, so it, it, it's been incumbent upon choices that individuals make. And um, it, at least here in Rhode Island, and of course in other states as well, not every state, uh, they've made the right choice and done the right thing. I will tell you that we, lifespan in particular, yeah. but the state in general, we're absolutely at the forefront. And it's people like John Murphy and Len Mermel, the infectious disease head, uh, I'm sorry, the infection control head, who were really proactive about how do we get ahead of this. And long before we started hearing it on a other state level and federal level, we were shutting everything down. And I'm really proud to have been part of that team. And I also, I can see it. We had one admission in the last 24 hours to COVID critical care units. Wow. And most of our admissions, in the, the, the three quarters of the admissions to the intensive care unit in the last 10 days have come from the wards, meaning patients with COVID on the medical wards who deteriorate. A very, a much smaller percentage is new patients coming in through the emergency department. Also, um, I don't know if you, you know this, Wayne, but we were one of the first states to have a COVID positive patient. So it was actually two months ago yesterday that we had our first COVID positive patient on February 27th. Right. Well before many other states had a COVID positive patient. It actually comes from the um, from a trip to Italy. I've been at Brown. Uh, I've been at Brown since 19 in Providence since 1997, 96. Okay. Um, I became the medical director of the intensive care unit, at medical intensive care unit, at Rhode Island Hospital in 1997, and I became chief of pulmonary critical care and sleep at the medical school and at uh, Rhode Island and the Merriam in 2006. Okay, so here's a really stupid reporter's question. You never expected to be dealing with anything like this, I am sure, from, from medical school until December, right? No, no, <laughs> no but you know, honestly, uh, and this is public knowledge, my son had Ebola. He was the NBC cameraman that got, uh, that was um, airlifted from uh, Liberia. And his last name is Mukpo, it's my wife's last name, Ashoka Mukpo. And so, I've had a brush with being in Nebraska and understanding uh, um, pandemics, etc. But I, I thought I was done with that. <laughs> How is your son doing now? Completely fine. Good. Absolutely fine. He's a journalist. Uh, he's oh, yeah, well, of course. Yeah. A, he and his wife uh, came up from New York about five weeks ago, ironically, because they were worried about me. And uh, so they <laughs> wanted to be there to support me. And they got out of New York just in time. Mitchell, anything that, that you want to say that I didn't hit on? One of the things to me that's characterized uh, our response to the pandemic is uh, the rem remarkable collaboration. Like I've, yeah. I've been part of this call every, every day at 10 o'clock on the ventilators. And it's remarkable because I have to admit, at first I thought I was talking with the Department of Health. Actually, the call was with a number of entrepreneurs from the state who had kind of volunteered their time to try to obtain ventilators and uh, reached out and worked with uh, some of the folks to get 
ventilators in case we needed to split ventilators. So I was really struck by how much people were pitching in in this effort, not just in the government and not just healthcare workers, but people who just want to do something. And, and I would say the same thing's true in my intensive care unit, that it's such a team effort. You have respiratory therapists, you have the facilities folks, and, and you often, especially with all the PPE, you can't tell who's who. And a lot of us yeah. don't even know we see each other every day. We don't, we don't often don't recognize each other. And if there's something that feels great about that, like I don't know who's a doctor, a respiratory therapist, uh, a facilities person, dietary, and there's, there's something that's leveling about that that's very heartening. And, and I think that story of collaboration is on both sides of this, both at a surge planning and a statewide level, and at moment by moment, day by day, caregiving level. It's uh, that's really the story of collaboration is very important. Final question: When did you? You obviously were reading what was happening in Wuhan, or about what was happening in Wuhan in December. When did it? When did you begin to think I got to start planning for a possible Rhode Island? And not even yeah. formally, when did that thought go in, into your head? <laughs> oh, you know, I, I'm not quite sure, and I don't want to make something up, but I will tell you, I have, because of my international uh, connections and relationships, I have very, very good friends in Milan and Italy, in Florence, and I started hearing from one of my friends is the president-elect of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, and he started emailing me early on, uh, February, uh, early February, mid-January, saying, this is horrible. And and uh, it was somehow hearing a friend yeah. describe the depths to which they were descending in uh, hospitals. It no longer felt far away. It really felt like, wow, this is at our doorstep. So it was then I started thinking, we need to start thinking about what we're going to do when it comes here. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.